And we're back for another episode of Thrills and Chills, brought to you by Sharebird and Clue. This show is all about establishing product marketing, being the first product marketer and the challenges they face. I'm your host, J.D. Prater. Before we get into today's episode with the global head of product marketing at Uber Eats, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Clue. Clue is the leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers that want to drive revenue for their business. It helps product marketers to easily collect, curate, and distribute insights that enable your revenue teams to beat their competition. Head over to Clue.com to learn more. That's K-L-U-E dot com. Mike, talk to me about joining Uber Eats as their first consumer product marketer. Yeah. So it was 2017 at the time. And I actually joined, for those who were familiar with the Uber story at the time, Uber was pre-IPO. I felt like Uber was just innovating in every different direction. They were always building something new. They talked about self-driving cars, flying cars, flying taxis, food delivery, which in 2017 was actually a fairly novel perspective (laughs) the way they were doing it. So my first day at the company was actually delete Uber. It was the start if you had followed the company. Company, you know, there was this outcry among the public. We had sent some tweets and it just set off this massive chain reaction where hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, you know, I, I don't even know how many people were deleting Uber in mass. And my first day was Monday, January 30th. And the tweet was sent on a Saturday. So I joined, you know, my manager missed picking me up from new hire training. I had to find my way to the office, really started my time at Uber on the right foot. So it was uh, uh, quite the journey. (laughs) Well, especially on the consumer side, right? I'm hoping you didn't have to prep anything, right? Like surely this is the new guy. He doesn't have to put out any kind of statements, right? Yeah. I mean, no statements, but I feel like the whole year was a statement, basically. <laughs> you know, it was actually funny because when one of my favorite tweets, it was interesting joining Uber Eats as there was this like delete Uber brand crisis, I would really say in 2017, because this tweet was stuck in my mind and somebody tweeted hashtag delete Uber. But can I keep Uber Eats? Is that okay? And yeah. and it really just talks to like these two different experiences of, you know, we were launching this small, scrappy food delivery business within this big rides mobility behemoth. Even though it's still a startup, it felt like a larger organization and how the public reacted to that. Yeah, like let's dive into it, you know, because this is 2017 and I think we take it for granted now in 2021 that, I mean, now we've all got the apps, right? Even some of your competitors, we may have three or four, just depending on where you're living, where you're based, who can give me the best deal, right? And I know at least maybe that was my own experience, but maybe I'm just projecting. That said, (laughs) I mean, 2017, like how were you thinking about that? I mean, that had to have been innovative. And how did you evaluate joining Uber Eats from your prior roles? Yeah. Well, first off, let's trim that three or four apps down to one. That's my, <laughs> my first, by the end of this call, hopefully we'll have you just at one. That's right. App. That's right. But I mean, beyond that, I think that there were a number of things I was thinking about. I think for me, I had worked in startups and I was like Mr. Startup. I had joined one company at 30 people, another at 10 people, another at 30 people that had been these scrappy early series A backed companies. And when I was approached actually by Uber, I was at a company called Five Stars where I had actually started product marketing there. 
five stars was about 35, 40 people when I joined. It was about 350 when I left. So I got to see a lot of hyper growth over those three years. But with Uber, I was reached out to and the recruiter presented two roles. He was like, one of them <laughs> is on this rides business. And the other one is on this Uber Eats thing. And I was like, oh, Uber Eats, like ride sounds way too big. Like that sounds like way too big a company, which is ironic, of course, today, because Eats is so much bigger than all of Uber was, I think, in 2017, oh. just from a business perspective. But when oh, I joined in 2017, the other stat I love is I think Uber Eats awareness was less than 5% in the US. And now we're probably, I don't know, we're much, much more than that. So it certainly was a startup within the, the startup and within the bigger company. And it felt like that. Oh, that's cool. So you're a startup person and you're looking at these roles. And of course, the startup one is speaking to you, this ambiguity of like, what is this? It's probably the excitement of maybe I get to build something. I get to have some impact. This is what we've heard from our previous guests. How do you evaluate that within this bigger Uber, right? I mean, it's Uber. It's a big company at this point. And we all know what's happening now. I mean, gone public, yeah. things have gone up and down, but fairly well overall. And it's been pretty impressive just to kind of see that full journey, or we should say maybe that ride, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I think we've delivered on that ride. I think um, <laughs> that was my bad food delivery joke, which I tried to fit in there. So yeah, I think when I, you know, the words that you mentioned around ambiguity, ownership, impact were definitely the things that I have always optimized towards. I think the place where you learn the most is when you jump into the deepest part of the water and you kind of hit the bottom of the pool and you swim your way out. And I think I've always taken that philosophy because as soon as you start to get comfortable, as soon as you remove the ambiguity, as soon as you know what you're doing, it means that your rate of growth, your rate of learning has slowed. Like you've gotten to the point where you're like, yeah, I can just do this. And yeah. for me, that was always where I was the least comfortable. I was always the least comfortable when I felt stagnant, when I felt comfortable. And, and I think for Uber Eats in 2017, this small scrappy startup within what I, was still kind of a small scrappy startup to some degree, it felt like the best of both worlds where you had the ownership and the impact of the startup, but you had world-class data scientists and engineers and product managers and the business was growing. So it felt like a dream job back then. And it was certainly delivered. Got to say, I feel a little seen right there uh, on that one. That's like, yeah, I mean, when you talked about feeling comfortable, I'm right there with you. And if you, it's typically whenever I am like ready to bounce, I've already mastered this and I can't grow anymore. I start to get comfortable and then like, I'm ready, you know? And so, and I know that each person is their own. They have different life phases and you have to optimize for different things. So whenever you're going into this, it sounds like a great role. It sounds like a great opportunity. You're coming in on the consumer side. Obviously now you're global head of product marketing. So talk to me about this four years of the restructuring, rebuilding, and how you ultimately have kind of come out four years later. Yeah, I think good career advice, I would say, is go to an area that is growing. If yeah. it's within a business, if it's another company, I just cannot explain enough how that growth fuels personal growth. It fuels career growth. Like you want to be in the part of the business. You want to be in a company that is growing. And when that happens, you know, managers become senior managers, become directors, become VPs. Like it all ships rise with that rising tide. So I really think that that's the first principle that I saw the business. I saw it was hyper growth. I saw a lot of potential because again, back then it was definitely riskier 
it panned out. In terms of working and expanding role and scope, I would really say it's the function of two, three things. I think one of them is I've been fortunate to like, I care a lot about my job and I have worked hard and have gotten really lucky along the way. I've had such amazing talent around me. And that I think is the best lesson, like hire the best people you possibly can people who are so much better than you at what you do and have them tell you what to do. It's such a cliche, but it's so true. Well, you were saying to that point, you hired Meredith, who was a guest on yeah. previously. I mean, yeah. it's, it's even, it's coming like full circle. Even we had her on, now she's the head of PMM at Bungalow, right? And so yeah. obviously it was a great hire for you. Uh, yeah, Meredith is extremely talented. It's been amazing to just see the product marketing function grow and expand the way it has. I was actually talking to somebody who joined our team in 2018. And in 2017, I had virtually no recruiting support. Uber Eats was, you know, this small <laughs> little company. There was no recruiter dedicated to Eats. So I was cold sourcing people on LinkedIn. Anybody who I thought could be valuable, I probably sent 150 LinkedIn emails. If you're listening to this right now, you may have gotten one from me and I apologize. <laughs> if I spammed you, but I was just searching for all these people and there weren't a ton of people who had done consumer product marketing. There yeah, were performance marketers, true. brand marketers, marketing managers, people who were doing product marketing, but they weren't called product marketers. So it's actually quite difficult to find people who had done, you know, four or five years of consumer PMM. It, it was just pretty rare. And contrasting that with today, I think the function has grown so much and I think it's going to keep growing. I think it's so fantastic. So that's been a great journey to see. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I mean, just go look at the PMA Slack channel for jobs. I mean, it's like whoop, 15 yeah. a day. You go to the Share Bird job portal. I mean, there's more every day. You know, there's even some Uber ones I have seen. Yep. So we are hiring. Uh, <laughs> are hiring. We'll have a link in Shameless the show notes. Plug. <laughs> hey, yeah, you want to talk about it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell us what roles you're hiring for. We're hiring. We're hiring consumer product marketers. We're hiring new verticals product marketers. If you're a PMM, we're hiring. So nice. So <laughs> Talk to me about going global, right? It's one thing to focus maybe just like on the US as probably most of the audience may be here or, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley type of companies are. What was that like? What was that leap like to now go global? How did that change your framing or how do you work with other geos? I can't understate how unbelievably challenging and complex it is. Uber, when I joined again, I'll take the 2017 example. Uber was the model of decentralization. We had <laughs> a CMO of Houston, Texas, and we had a CMO of Dallas, Texas. Like it was effective. I mean, they were not CMOs, but they were pretty close. They ran their market. And as a global function, your job is to kind of keep best practices, playbooks, scale, growth. Like, you know, the globe is a pretty big place. So you're not one region, you're the sum of all regions. And the complexity working to say, I remember people at the time, our person who ran ops would be like, that's global, this is US, like keep their <laughs> separate, you know? So I think it's easy to conflate US and global as one yeah. region, but I think it's really important that even though the US is, you know, 50% of your business or 60% of your business, it's not the whole business. So it's really important to keep that in mind, but uh, it is a challenge for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, thinking in your own like product marketing role and function, how do you think about taking that narrative or shaping it for each region? Is that something that you do or do you provide the guidelines or like the bare bones? It's getting a little tactical, but I'm just yeah. curious how you, one, grew your career into that. And then two, it's like, how do you then enable those teams to take something that you've put together and you've sculpted in this global side, but yet make it personalized for maybe India? 
Yeah. I think on the career side, nothing can prepare you for a global role, like a global role. I mean, I certainly (laughs) had, I was fortunate at five stars. And actually when I was hired at Eats, it was a big benefit because I had worked with, we had a 200 person outside sales team. And that team was super decentralized. You had sales managers in Houston and Dallas and Oklahoma and Denver and all over the place. And I had to work with those sales teams, which operated actually quite like an operations team does at Uber. So I was fortunate to have some relevant experience in managing and working with decentralized organizations. But you know, from a global perspective, I actually think one of the best practices and learnings I would apply here, and this is a little you know uh, throwback, but put your feet in the ground in other places. Like it was always travel to Europe or be able to go visit a local team in another market. And at Uber, I mean, I think pre-pandemic, I think I flew 110,000 miles a year. Like I was just all over the place, but it was great. And it was really valuable because you got to see how teams on the ground would operate and how different, you know, it is to market in Amsterdam than it is in Japan than it was in the Middle East. So that was a great experience to be able to do. And that's the best way to learn other cultures is like to go there and be there and listen. Got it. Yeah, that's really cool. Because Breeze is like really taken off. You mentioned this kind of even like brand awareness side of things, but there had to have been some challenges early on. Talk to me about some of those challenges that you faced early on coming in first PML on the consumer side. And if you can maybe contrast though, like what are the challenges now? Because this is rapid growth. You're talking hyper growth. I mean, just look at Eats as a perfect example. And this is only four years. I mean, you talked about five stars going from like 30 to 300, right? This is thousands of people now. I don't know if I mentioned I joined on Delete Uber Day. That was a challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> no, I think the challenges and the things that I've looked back on and have reflected on are the same. My highest highs and my toughest challenges are the same. And when you're in a challenging period of time, the thing about that is you're not sitting there at your lowest low or when you're working all the time or you're struggling through something, you're not sitting there going, I'm going to look back on this and this is going to be a great experience. You're just in that moment trying to breathe and survive and get through it. But every single time I've had a challenge in front of me and I've gotten through it because you always do. You always get through those challenges. You look back on it and you're like, yeah, I'm really glad I did that. Yeah. 2017 on Eats was that. It was a tough year at Uber. A lot of people left. Some people stayed. It was hard for the business. It was a period of transition. Uber's had reorganizations, some which have been you know pretty public. And as we went from private company to public company, from unprofitable to moving towards profitability, like that's been a challenge. Saying goodbye to people is always tough. But I think the principle that you have to apply there is like one, I love to say the thing you want to do the least is the thing you need to do the most which is really like lean into the challenge, find the hard problem and lean into that. And I think the second one is just have your eyes open and be really reflective. Every time I've gone through one of these challenges, like I go and I write on like a Sunday afternoon, I'll just like spend 30 minutes writing down like what just happened? Because I think when you're living in that moment, you're there, but actually reflecting on it, you start to pattern match and identify things that are similar. And that's how you learn and grow. And those tough times really help that. Yeah, for sure. I can totally relate to that. I think for me, I'm a cyclist, so I don't necessarily like ride on a Sunday afternoon, but I get to go outside, ride my bike, just be by myself, 
focused, cleared head outside of my leg screaming at me, but like, <laughs> it's just, I need something else. Right. And it allows a lot of times ideas to pop up yeah. new ideas, the pattern matching that you talked about. I'm curious whenever you're thinking about, you know, it is product marketing and you're establishing it. What does that look like? I mean, was it hard? Did people understand the role of product marketing? Was it hard to get resources for it? I mean, we've, we've heard these things from past guests and I'm just curious what your experience was like. Yeah, it was super tough. <laughs> I think, so I joined and there was a product, there were, I think three PMMs was when I joined. And then I think two of those PMMs left in under six months since I joined. My manager left about three weeks in and then I ended oh, wow. up reporting to Jason, who's the CEO of Eats and was just like a wonderful leader and somebody who I'm still in touch with. It was a great mentor today. I've established product market. So I helped rebuild, you know, product marketing here on Eats. I've done, I built product marketing at five stars and even did this in some past lives. And I really think what I say is you have to product market product marketing maybe a little bit less today because the function exists people know about it a little bit but you know you have to identify what is the differentiated value that your function drives like why are you different than brand why are you different than crm like what is that difference? And then how do you hire for that? So for us, I ended up hiring really talented PMMs who could have been product managers. And that's not true everywhere, but all of our PMMs had to go through a product manager loop. They all had to be interviewed. Like they can pass that bar. And I think that helped reinforce the value. So you don't just have this, you know, oh, we're great messaging specialists, which we are, but we actually had a differentiated value. We determined that differentiated value and then we had to hire it. And then you had to prove it again and again, because that seat of the table isn't just given it's earned and it has to be re-earned again and again. So it was tough to get resources. It was tough to define the function, but it's been okay. It's worked out. Yeah, obviously. I mean, it's worked out really well. Just look at the growth, you know, even in your own career, but also in the company, looking through it and you're kind of like getting to reflect back now, whenever you're looking to kind of scale out and build out a team, do you have like a place that you like to start? Do you have a starting place of, I know there's already, you know, a couple other PMMs whenever you got in there, but like, what's the next step? Is it, how do you think about sourcing the PMM to do X, Y, and Z? Yeah. So on the consumer side, you know, there wasn't anybody. And I took, there are two types of people that I think are really important to hire. One of them is taking a skill set that you think you're good at and finding somebody who's just much better at it than you. So you can just trust them. Then the other side is finding somebody who fills the gaps for you. And really you have to do both those things immediately. You know, I was really fortunate to hire just awesome people who were better at growth than I have ever been. And I thought I was okay, but they're so much better. And then we're better at messaging than, you know, which was an area that I was like, oh, great. I'll hire a great brand, creative product market. They're just going to take care of this. And so really your first act, your first order is you have to have a great team because no one person building a function like that. One person does not equal a function. So you have to have great people, hire people who complement your skill set, and then just can take this thing that you already have and just tax it. Yeah, I think that's like really good advice. Whenever you're thinking about trying to establish product marketing, and you're listening to this podcast, maybe, and you're even thinking like size of Uber. I mean, the frameworks, the principles, they're still the same. You can still take this and apply that to a series A where you're the first person coming in because Mike, you've done this before. I mean, this is something that you've repeatedly done. This is like your playbook. You're just exposing it to all of us right now. And I appreciate that. So what else would you add to that? You know, so so chapter one, we've got some great skills. We're having figured out who to hire for, how to plug those. Maybe like what's chapter two? 
Yeah, this is the whole playbook. I have. A, <laughs> I feel like I should get a deck like yeah. the playbook. No, uh, it's always learning and growing. Honestly, I think chapter two is. So I have another principle, which is every time a company or a team, every time a team doubles, it's a new team. And I think that's a okay. really important attribute because what will get you there isn't necessarily what has gotten you there before. So when we were three people, it was this, you can kind of be arm's length with them. You know, you turn to the person to your right, you turn to the person to your left, that's your team. But actually when we became six or eight, that's some real scale. And you start having different meetings. You start having, you know, one-on-ones that take up more time. You start, you know, not being able to do all the work yourself. You have to start having other people. And one thing that really helped us as we grew in scale, in addition, I'll just keep coming back to like hiring great people. But, you know, we had cultural values and things that we looked looked at as we grew and scaled to make sure that everybody we were hiring still believed in things like, you know, we are collaborative, we're not competitive, that we are like setting this bar that we're helping each other, we're learning, you're always learning. So as you're scaling, you have to be conscious of how you're scaling. It's not just hiring 10 people as fast as possible. It's really focusing on like, hey, that next person, how are they going to step change your team? How are they going to step change your function? Oh, that's really good. I like that. I had a question too, that you were, we were just kind of talking about consumer side, right? Is that like your main focus or is now like PMM, you're like thinking B2B side too, right? Are you now like the double-sided marketplace that you're thinking, right? Yeah. So Eats is actually a three-sided marketplace, which, oh, is, three-sided. More, which is 50% more complicated than in the two-sided. So we have the eater side, we have the merchant side, and then we have the courier side. Ultimately, you know, I'm accountable for the results for all of delivery or Uber Eats, I should really say, which is that all these sides of the marketplace have to work together. Sure. And that's ultimately, you know, the responsibility. It isn't just one in a vacuum. I would say that I do spend a lot more time on the demand side, which is the consumer side, I think. But, you know, I've really seen and, and having worked on five stars with the BB side, that that those two sides are really related, but you know, we have great people who run the merchant team and the career teams as well. Good. You set me up perfectly because <laughs> I wanted to get into was this, talk to me about like the consumer side of product marketing. You talked earlier on about how this wasn't at the time, like a lot of yeah. like talent there. I think that's obviously changed in the last five years, but versus the B2B product marketer, right? Where's the overlap there? Where do you think they're uniquely different or like their skill sets? I'm just curious. Yeah, I think the biggest one, so before Uber, I would have said I was probably just as much B2B marketer as I was B2C marketer, honestly. And what I learned on the B2B side and took into the consumer side, I actually think really helped me. I thought of funnels. I I dreamt of funnels. I would think of the sales funnel. I would think about, you know, you get a hundred leads in, you got 50% of those leads to actually get a call. You have 20% of those to go to sales. You have 10%, the 35% close rate. So I was always thinking about funnels and joining the consumer side, the two elements of consumer product marketers that I thought were more prevalent were one, you have to have a great product sense. And that's actually the thing that I find the most whenever I talk to a brand marketer or performance marketer, like you have to clear that bar. And that's a tough one to clear. Like you have to have a great product sense, meaning you understand the user journey. You can articulate trade-offs. You understand the the decision that you're making if you do this versus this, like that's one bar. And then I think the second side of the B2B versus the B2C side is, you know, really being the consumer side, I think is just this element of like less rational. And I mean that in the best way. It's more (laughs) of a brand and it's an experience. It's an emotion. It's a feeling. And on the B2B side, if you go and you're selling enterprise software and you're like, do you feel this? Are you feeling what? I'm selling, they're going to be like, yeah, no. So I think it's a mix of, you have to have the feeling on the consumer side and you have to have some of this like rational pragmatism, funnel math, which I was really lucky to have worked on. 
Yeah, I can definitely relate. That's pretty spot on. I will say, I mean, for the B2B out there, definitely getting better. I mean, it's yeah. definitely come a long way. And I think part of that is because the consumer side has got so good and so prevalent. Ooh. Consumers now expect that for all of their experiences, right? Yeah. And so B2B is playing this catch-up game of, you know, you see like HubSpot buying the hustle, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, becoming a media company, right? And it's like, yeah. how do you, in a B2B CRM, buying the hustle, right? And it's like, totally. okay, I get it. Yeah. I see what's happening here, you know? Yeah, I think that's so spot on. And I actually think it's really interesting. The same way that there weren't a ton of consumer product marketers then, I actually think the most, you know, cold LinkedIn emails that I get are from people who are doing some bottoms up SaaS or B2B company who are looking for people who have consumer experiences because the B2B side is not enterprise security. It is Figma, it's Notion, yeah. it's Slack. Like you're finding these tools that are design software, but they have a consumer motion. Like they're free to download. They have to have a unique position. It's not just design software. It has to mean something. So I actually think that's a really fascinating macro trend. And, and I've definitely seen that a lot too. Yeah, I actually appreciate it. And I, I'm with you too. I see it as a trend. I see it only get becoming more like with freemium modeling. I think it just allows a quicker motion too. I think that's one thing that I've seen, especially like enterprise B2B. I mean, a sales cycle could be 12 months. Me downloading an app is 30 seconds after seeing yeah. a commercial or talking to a friend, right? Or seeing the restaurant, I see a sign and I want the delivery, right? I mean, uh -huh. I'm not going to go do that. I need the buying committee. I got to have a sign up, <laughs> right? It's just, so yeah. I do think when I think about if you're out there and you're like, man, maybe I would be good at consumer. It's like, I think the SMB world, I think those B2B where you're looking at thousands, you know, hundreds of thousand type of customers versus I only need 200 customers to go public, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there like, is oh, wow. a range. Yeah, there's totally a range and a spectrum of like, you're selling to the five whatever companies versus you're working with 250,000 designers or, yeah. you know, whatever that is like that, or small businesses or organizations. There's definitely a spectrum. And I've definitely seen a lot more. I think I'll continue to. Yeah, I think, well, we can shift away from trends. We should have like a whole nother episode mm -hmm. where we just yeah. talk about like product sure. marketing trends. We've already hit on a bunch here of just consumer side growing, how B2B is going to change. We talked about the amount of new people coming into the market and which is a, maybe a good time for us to stop and reflect. This podcast is called Thrills and Chills. And you've mentioned a few earlier, but I'm just curious, when you think highs and lows of your product marketing career, and you've been doing this for over a decade now, what are some of those highs and lows that you think about? Yeah, I think they're really the same. I really do. Like the lows turn into the highs because upon reflection, you can overcome the low and that is a high. And I mean, 2017 was hard. Like for people who have been at the company or for people who worked at Uber, you know, I was joining and it was just a tough year and a lot of people left. And I'm actually really proud that I didn't leave. And the easy thing would have been to leave. Like Facebook was cold messaging every other day. Like a lot of great people left, but to stay and to work through that and to be resilient and adaptable and not give up. And then the flip side of that, I actually think for those who are going through a tough time today is like pushing through that. I earned a lot of credibility with the team by not giving up 
by sticking that out. And 2020 actually was a, another year for that was highs and lows. Like it, this was a time when the businesses shifted. We flipped. We had a huge mobility business and delivery was like this little brother. And then all of a sudden this pandemic accelerated a lot of those trends in delivery and we became the bigger sibling. We had a growth spurt and that was tough. That was a tough year personally, professionally for a lot of people, I'm sure too. But again, I, I reflect on that year in particular, like last year as one of the proudest of my career where the team came together. Everybody learned so much. It was really hard, but you know, everybody was kind of in it for each other. And it felt like a, a time where we had to do something a little bit bigger than just, you know, deliver food for Friday night, date night. And I'm really proud of that. So I think the highs and the lows are the same upon reflection for sure. Yeah, I can definitely look back on some of my own and can definitely relate. It's sometimes when you're in that low, though, I mean, it hurts. Yeah. You're just, I mean, you're stressed. You're not sleeping. You're yeah. dreaming about funnels. <laughs> this is my current world right now. And I'm no joke, woke up, it's like 4 a.m. and I'm dreaming about yeah. funnels, right? I mean, and it happens. Yeah. So I guess you could also say somewhat in a low, but I know that the outcome of this, right? Once we push through it and we get the mechanisms in place, we get the alignment, get the agreement. I'm going to be able to look back and say, wow, that was a high. So I think if you're yeah. out there, push through resilience. Yeah. There's some grit involved in there too. Earn that trust. So Mike, fantastic advice. Thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks everyone. That wraps up today's episode of Thrills and Chills. And again, thank you Clue for being a sponsor of this show because with Clue, you can build and deliver battle cards to help sales close more deals. Stay on top of your competitor strategies and measure your competitive program's impact to the bottom line. Don't just compete, compete to win with Clue. And a special thanks again to ShareBird for making this podcast possible. We'll see you all next Thursday.